welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. We're live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. With or without Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court will begin its new term on October 1st, and the justices will take on a number of seemingly ordinary cases that could have wide-ranging implications for the country. Speaking to reporters this week, Louisiana Senator John Kennedy said he and his fellow Republicans were working to make sure Kavanaugh would be on the court from day one. We've got a deadline of October 1. That's when the Supreme Court starts, and I, I, I think we ought to meet it. Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. Kimberly, this might be a sleeper term at the Supreme Court. Compare this term to last term. Well, last term was really just an incredible term where we saw so many headline-grabbing cases. We had cases where the judges were going to potentially decide such issues as big as partisan gerrymandering, uh, of course, the controversial travel ban, and even a really high-profile dispute between uh, religious freedom rights and LGBT protections. So uh, it was quite monumentous term, but not totally out of uh, out of the realm of what we've been seeing from the Supreme Court over the last several terms. Now, it's not always the cases that start with the big headlines that have the most effects. In your latest piece, you quote Professor Jonathan Turley of the George Washington University Law School, calling one of the cases coming up this term a Trojan horse. Let's start with that. Well, sure. This case is called Gundy versus United States, and it really involves kind of a sleeping giant among constitutional law, and that's what's known as uh, the non-delegation doctrine. And it's really simply just that, you know, Congress can uh, give some of its lawmaking authority away to administrative agencies that are in the executive branch, but it has to give the agency some guidance. It can't give away all of its lawmaking authority. Uh, And so the Supreme Court has cited this rule often, but it hasn't very often struck down laws based on this rule. Indeed, the last time and only time that the court has done it uh, was in the 1930s. Now, what effect might the case have if the court does this? The United States, in its briefing, noted that nearly a dozen laws that the court has the courts have upheld under this lenient standard might might be subjected to this. Well, that's right, and it really depends on how the Supreme Court ultimately comes down, how broadly they say the non-delegation doctrine applies. And so, you know, if the court is going to hold Congress to task uh, very tightly and, and make it, you know, make a really clear guidance to the agencies, then that could put, uh, you know, virtually unlimited laws um, in play if instead the court says, well, in general, Congress has a lot of leeway, but here it went too far, that's going to affect fewer laws. So, Double jeopardy, it's a concept that most people are familiar with from TV and the movies, at least, but they don't often understand all the implications of it. And there's a case asking the court to overturn a 60-year-old precedent. Tell us about that. Well, that's right. This is Gamble versus the United States, and it does involve the, the very confusing doctrine of double jeopardy. And this is really, at its most simplest, just the idea that an individual can't be tried over and over again for the same crime. At some point, uh, you know, the government 
has to stop. They really only should get one bite of the apple. Uh, but there has been this long-standing 60-year-old exception to that doctrine, and that's called the separate sovereigns doctrine, the idea that if you a state could try you for the same crime as the federal government is trying you for. Now, in this case, people are saying that doctrine, that separate sovereign's doctrine, it has to go. So would that mean we've seen civil rights cases where the federal government has used this in order to be able to pursue civil rights cases after a federal case was lost at the criminal trial? Would this affect that? Well, look, again, it depends on how broadly uh, the Supreme Court comes down. And so uh, there is some concern that whenever there's a failed state criminal action, that we would like the federal government to be able to come in and punish the same conduct under civil rights violations. You know, the most famous example probably is that of um, the officers in the Rodney King beating where this happened. Uh, but, you know, the court could rule a bit more narrowly if it wants to over return this doctrine and just say that, you know, it can't be the exact same laws that these states are operating under, that it has, that if you can find just a slight difference, then that's going to be enough to get around double jeopardy. So again, it, it depends on what the Supreme Court ultimately says. And last term, Kimberly, did the court issue a lot of narrow rulings well, they had a lot of rulings that really got around a lot of the big merits questions um, that they were asking. And so, you know, the travel ban is one exception where the court came down, uh, you know, on the merits of that decision. But in the other ones that I mentioned, the court really sidesteps the issue and kind of kicked the can down the down the, the way for another day. So we, we did see a lot of narrow and kind of um, circular decisions from the court last year. So Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund said there could be cases this term with lasting effects on minorities. Tell us about one of those cases. Well, right. The Supreme Court has already agreed to hear a case called Obendesky, which deals with the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. Now, this is a longtime statute that is meant to curb uh, deceptive practices in in lending. And it's very important for minority groups because studies have shown that they are more often uh, the target of kind of predatory lending. And so this is an issue of whether how broadly those protections apply in certain floor closure proceedings. Now, is the court taking up any cases that have already made headlines? Well, the court isn't done yet filling out its its docket. And so we don't have those just yet, but there are several that are waiting in the pipeline. In particular, there's one about how much federal law uh, protects against discrimination uh, based on sexual orientation, both in schools and in employment. And and that's something uh, to keep an eye on if the justices decide to grant that case. Now, if the justices go into the October term with just eight justices, if Kavanaugh has not been confirmed yet, how will that affect what cases they decide to take as the term goes on? Well, we have a pretty good idea about how this will affect that, and that's because, you know, the court set recently with just eight members, and we could see a real effect uh, that that had on its docket, both in the terms of the number of cases that it took. It didn't take as many cases, and also in the kinds of cases that it took. And so what we saw was that they had... Uh, cases that weren't as controversial, that didn't risk getting these evenly split decisions. Always a pleasure to have you on, Kimberly. That's Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. 
We're live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio, and in Washington today, U.S. antitrust enforcers are kicking off a second day of hearings to explore whether their playbook needs revamping because of rising industry concentration and the dominance of tech giants. Joining me is Joel Mitnick, a partner at Cadwallader. So, Joel, have mergers made the American economy less competitive, or is something else at work? Uh, thank you, uh, June, first of all, for, for having me uh, on the show. Uh, so I don't think mergers have made the American economy less competitive, and I think that the merger standard at the agencies are actually pretty rigorous in terms of the review. Uh, I think that there are probably a lot of other factors at play, but I don't think competition or lack of competition enforcement is the reason for any uh, lack of competitiveness. I'm not sure that there is a lack of competitiveness, by the way. So you disagree with the economists and lawyers who've called for more aggressive enforcement? I, so it's not actually more aggressive enforcement so much as I think the interesting thing about the current hearings in Washington is that people are calling for different enforcement. And the key standard that antitrust lawyers have been using since probably the mid-90s when the so-called Chicago School developed this theory of consumer welfare has focused on whether a given merger or a conduct can result in higher prices, less choice, less innovation. And the question is whether that should continue as the standard or whether in the newer economy, particularly with these huge tech uh, web giants like Amazon and Google, have they changed the landscape with, for example, um, uh, low-cost reproduction of digital files? or giving away products at below cost, has it changed the nature of what it means to gain dominance? Because they can gain dominance now with a very, very low-cost structure, which traditionally would be viewed as pro-competitive. And so that's really the question. It's not so much as more aggressive as it is, do we have the right standard? So what kind of standard would you use if you don't want to use price effects? Well, I think that's what the hearings are trying to explore. Uh, and this is probably consistent with the progressive movement that's been going on throughout America. Uh, in, in opening up today's hearing, I understand Commissioner Slaughter um, made an observation that uh, it can't possibly be the case that these lengthy, conclu- these lengthy hearings would lead to quote, a conclusion that nothing should change. So, uh, and, and she came from uh, Senator Schumer's staff, and Senator Schumer is on record for expanding the kinds of analysis and the kinds of effects that antitrust law takes into account. For example, people today are wondering whether antitrust standards should take account of uh, labor, uh, effects of labor, on, effects on labor of a merger or other conduct, whether it should be looking at concentration of wealth. So in a way, it's kind of a return to the populist antitrust movement that existed before the 1980s for a very long time that essentially rested on the notion big is bad. And today, I think the analysis that uh, Commissioner Slaughter and uh, Commissioner uh, Chopra and others are raising 
uh, is much more sophisticated than simply big is bad, but it is that populist notion that antitrust shouldn't be just focused on price to consumers, but should look at broader uh, economic interests. I'm not sure that anybody knows yet what the right standard is for the modern economy, but I think it's probably a good idea that it's being explored in these kinds of hearings. Do you agree, though, with the conclusion of many industry analysts that there are a lot of industries that have grown more concentrated, including even agriculture, healthcare, airlines? So I think that that is true. Um, and it's not clear why necessarily that is. But the fact that there is concentration, I think, in the older big is bad analysis would probably be the equivalent of saying that those concentrations are anti-competitive. Again, I think with the economic tools that we have available to us, we're able to look at the industries that have concentrated and see that there are also a lot of efficiency gains. And then the question becomes, are the efficiency gains and the scale that the more concentrated competitors can achieve, are they actually having more vigorous competition? So in a lot of areas, for example, old brick-and-mortar um, uh, companies and industries may have concentrated, but that concentration allows them more strength and more scale in order to compete against the Internet companies and the web-based companies. So again, I, I don't think that we yet know what the answer is. I think it's very good that we're studying the question. The Justice Department's Antitrust Division has asked the U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C. to reverse the ruling by Judge Leon in the AT&T Time Warner case. About a minute here, what's, what's your opinion of where that's going to go? Well, I think that was a case that probably should never have been brought. And having brought it, the division is between a rock and a hard place because they have a terrible precedent on their hand. And so they have to roll the dice whether that precedent will become entrenched, maybe even made worse for them, or whether they can reverse it on appeal. Um, I think probably that's the reason that the Solicitor General of the United States reportedly opposed the appeal, because if they lose this appeal, it will have a much more uh, entrenching effect in terms of the DOJ having a very hard time in the next vertical case. All right, we'll have to leave it there, Joel. That's Joel Mitnick of Cadwallader. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.